Man, thank the Lord for his word and for our service thus far. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we bless you this morning that the battle between yourself and the powers of darkness have never been uncertain. But we praise your name that now it is forever sure to end in victory. Our hearts this morning amidst the struggles of the present day will look back to the conflicts of Calvary and see how our Lord forever there broke the serpent's head. O oh Lord, that your people this morning might know that we are contending with a vanquished enemy, that we go forth to fight against the one who with all his subtlety and with all his strength has already been overthrown by him who is our covenant head, our leader, our husband, our all in all. Lord, grant to your dear children who are by any means depressed because they feel the serpent at their heel, that they might bless the dear name of Christ whose heel was bruised before but who in the very bruising broke the serpent's head. Our souls with songs of inward joy extol the mighty conqueror, Jesus Christ. All honor and glory be unto him who stood foot to foot with the arch enemy of our souls, but who was never wounded by him. The prince of this world came, but there was nothing in you, O Christ, no tendency to sin, no turning aside but you did win from the first even to the last a glorious victory over this dreaded adversary of mankind Lord we confess again our sins which are many before you with great self abhorrence and we detest them the Lord be pleased to forgive your servants in this thing and let us each this morning feel the application of the precious blood which speaks better things than that of Abel. May every child of God know now that he is clean through the washing of the blood. O oh Lord, that we might be certain that no guilt is recorded against us now. For it is blotted out forever, and the record is destroyed. Being justified by faith, we have peace, deep, lasting peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, will you be pleased to heal us of any wounds that we have received in this great conflict with our enemy? Lord, you know that during the week, some of us have been in the thick of the battle. And many temptations have gathered around us. Lord, we pray this morning that though we have been mired and our feet have been dusted, we ask you to wash them this morning, that we may be clean of every inch of it. If our faith has suffered any damage, or our hope is not so bright as it was, or if our love to you be not as fervent as at one time it was. If the soul is sinking under the pressure of the fight 
in any degree. O Lord, whose very word is music, whose every promise is balm, whose every touch is life, draw near to the weary saint within this congregation right now and refresh us that we may rise again to the conflict and never grow tired and weary until the last enemy shall be beneath our feet as beneath our master's feet. Father, we now ask you to give victory to your church all over the world and here in Anniston in Calhoun County. Lord, look down upon the heathen, those who reject you, those who hate your church, those who hate your saints, and see how their gods are on their thrones. Lord, we ask you to cast them down. You who has cast out the dragon, cast down those inferior powers of darkness until not an idol god shall be left. And Lord, sometimes we may feel staggered by prayer because of our own land and what is going on in our nation and other lands where Christ is preached. Why is our land and other lands where the gospel is preached still so dark? Lord, look on countries where the gospel is proclaimed and yet men still live in sin. And the policy of many nations is unchristian, if not anti-Christian. Lord, look on the nations. Gather out the remnant of your people, even from among them, and let the light of your chosen shine forth, that it may be seen that your saints are not only lights to themselves, but lights of the world. A city on the hill that cannot be hidden. Lord, we pray for our city, our county. We pray, Lord, that the gospel is proclaimed and that it is effectual in the hearts of men in our area. Lord, we ask you to bind the works of false teachers and false prophets who seek to subvert the gospel and who pervert your name among the world. Lord, remove their candlestick from them that it may be placed in the true church. And Father, I pray this morning for our brethren at our sister churches, Anderson Bible, Grace Fellowship, Christian Fellowship, Redeemer, Mountain View, Iron City, Baptists, other sound churches, other sound brethren, that we continue to press forth in proclaiming your truth, standing on your truth, not backing down from those who want to assault your truth. Give us men, Lord. Give us strong, godly men who are not afraid to proclaim your truth. Give us strong, godly men to lead your church, to shepherd the flock of God, to provide good oversight, to be good stewards of the gospel with which we have been entrusted. 
And Father, we pray that you convert those who come and sit with us from Sunday to Sunday and are unconverted. Lord, have mercy upon some that once were professors of Christianity, but continue to come in and out without repentance, without turning back to you. Lord, have mercy upon those who are unsaved, who are unconverted. And Lord, as we preach this morning and as the word is heard, may we be not hearers only, but that we may be attentive hearers. May we be doers of your word and not hearers only. Father, I pray that you send your spirit to illuminate your truth this morning as we look at the crucible of decision, how providentially you placed us where we are for a time such as this. May we see Christ, the great mediator, in this passage this morning. Lord, help me to point our church to Christ. May he be exalted in the preaching and hearing of your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. In part of my prayer came from uh, this book I have that Bob gave me called The Pastor in Prayer. It's prayers from uh, the great Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. These are prayers that he prayed in his pulpit, his pastoral prayers, and they're good prayers of meditation. I've been reading through uh, that book and adapting some of his prayers for our time of prayer. And uh, we thank God for the work of uh, Charles Spurgeon. He's very influential to me and to a lot of other uh, pastors. Amen. Let us turn to Esther, the fourth chapter, where I'm excited every Sunday, but I'm especially excited to preach this message this morning as we um, look at this passage in the fourth chapter, the crucible of decision uh, for such a time as this. We're going to look at, define the word crucible and what the word crucible is. I don't know when you all saw that word on the service details and you all went to Google to see what crucible means, but if not, you'll know what it means uh, this morning. Um, but hopefully, prayerfully, you had a chance to read ahead. There's no mystery where we're going to be each week, uh, at least for the next few weeks. Uh, but hopefully, prayerfully, you had a chance to, to read. <clears throat> and see where the plot begins to thicken. And God's plan of saving the Jewish people uh, continues to um, turn. So we're going to read the chapter, uh, relatively short. It says, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went so far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. He was very stubborn. Then Esther 
called Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Susa, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hatak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go to the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that uh, you, I'm sorry, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you must remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. You who knows whether you have come, I'm sorry, you yet rather, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Susa and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king which I, which is rather against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. I don't know, uh, in reading that passage, there are two sayings that stick out to me that are popular uh, things to quote. One is, if I perish, I perish. And the other one you probably hear people say, for such a time as this. Uh, even secular uh, people use that phrase sometimes when, when dealing with certain uh, moments uh, that come and happen in our culture. They'll say, you know, they'll say for such a time as this, and they're actually referencing the very Bible that they deny to be the source of God's truth. But the word of God is true whether people want to believe it or not, and there is a such a time that God has called people to act and for Esther, this is the time that she is called to do what she is to do as uh, the queen and the wife of King Ahasuerus. There was a book um, by an author named uh, Arthur Miller. That was his name. I remember reading it when I was in high school and I taught it to um, my students uh, when I was an uh, English teacher. And the book is called The Crucible. And it was published in 1953. And the book was an allegory, uh, which is basically a poem or a story uh, with a hidden meaning uh, that has a moral or political message. It was an allegory of what was called McCarthyism, 
uh, which was uh, in the 1950s in uh, America, uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, he was uh, hunting out those who were communists among the American people. This was after the end of World War II and the defeat of uh, Nazi uh, Germany and Stalin's Russia, and communism had begun to spread to the United States. And you know, this was in the, in the heights of the Cold War, and people saw the evils of communism in Russia, and they didn't want communism to come over here. And during that time, being a communist was very popular. Uh, but uh, led by uh, Joseph McCarthy, he was uh, bringing people to Congress to basically interrogate them about their communism. He was hunting for and punishing communists. And so Arthur Miller wrote this book, um, The Crucible, as an allegory there. And The Crucible was about the Salem witch trials that took place in uh, 1692 in Puritan New England, in the, uh, uh, the, the colonies up in the uh, northeast. Uh, Salem, Massachusetts was where uh, they took place. I don't know if you all ever heard of the Salem witch trials, but they were, uh, witches were, um, you know, brought to court and they uh, were found guilty and they were sentenced to death. Uh, they were burned at the stake. And one of the more famous witches, you probably heard this name, Joan of Arc. Uh, Joan of Arc was one of the more famous uh, names of witches that were um, executed or burned at the stake. But the crucible was about uh, those uh, witch trials. And what is a crucible? A crucible is a, is a type of testing. It is a type of trying under trial when a person must make a critical choice. And that crucible in that is a critical point. It is a life-altering point in which an important a decision must be made. So you think about a crucible, you think about a, a decision that you have to make that is life altering, that it will alter the course of your life. An illustration could be a young lady who is committing the sin of fornication and she uh, ends up pregnant. And she comes to a point where she looks at the, the, the man that she slept with and she looks at uh, the baby that's growing in her stomach and she has a choice to make. It is a very critical decision because either decision is going to be life-altering. Having that baby murdered is a life-altering critical decision that has to be made. And also bringing that baby to, to term and being a mother when you didn't plan on being a mother is a life-altering decision. Also, that is a crucible of choice, a, a critical point where something has to be done. And we see this in this passage today that Esther is at a very crucial point in her queendom. Where she is asked by her first cousin Mordecai to go before the king. And she knew the danger in doing it because we read in the text where she said, what will happen? And no one can go before the king. If they go unannounced or if they go uninvited, uh, they will be killed unless 
He extends the golden scepter to them. But this king was uh, very unpredictable. So she was at a very crucial point where a decision had to be made. And it was a life altering decision. And I will say this also. That there's no such thing as a neutral worldview. Every choice that we make is based on a worldview. We can't remain neutral when we have to make a choice. We can't stand pat and do nothing. When that time comes where we have to make a life-altering decision, we can't just stand neutral and say, okay, I just won't do anything at all. There's something in logic called the myth of neutrality. Neutrality is a myth. Nothing is ever neutral. Everything comes from a worldview. Everything happens from a worldview. Everything that a person says comes from a certain worldview. We, we talked about that when we began our worldview uh, Bible study and teaching a couple months ago that everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a view of the world. Every choice that we make is based on a worldview. So there's no such thing as a neutral stance. You can't take a neutral stance on abortion. Either babies in the womb are image bearers of God and worthy of dignity, worthy of life, or they are not. There's no neutral stance. There's no nuance to it as people try to make nuanced arguments. There's no nuanced arguments about whether a person is male or female. There are only two sexes. There's no neutral stance to take. Either there are male and female or there's no alternative. There's no neutral ground to take. But you have many people who try to make a neutral stance to, to try to not offend either side of the argument or either side of the theological spectrum. But when that crucible of choice comes, we as believers have to take a stand for what's right and what is true. So as we look at the questions that we've been looking at each uh, week, the author's purpose in this passage is to show that in times of deep distress, after fasting, mourning, and lamenting, we must turn decisively to God and to his providence. We have to turn to God in times of deep distress. We have to turn to God. We cannot turn to another. What does God want to accomplish through the author? That despite the hidden, the apparent hidden nature of God, he is working his purpose out. That God is working with human behavior and responses to him. That God does protect and save his people. And that he calls his people to faith in him. We see all these things that God is showing us in this passage. As always, the one sentence summary of this passage is that God is actively involved in all human affairs, including the lives of Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews, 
and also the king and Haman in order to accomplish his sovereign providential plan of redemption despite the evil that his people may face that God is still working out his purpose what value does the book of Esther in this chapter have for us today again it is the providence of God we see God's superintendence in the life of Esther and Mordecai as they plan to save the Jewish people we see God at work we see providence at work so let's look at observations from the text we're going to look at three things the cry the call and the choice so verses one through four we see the cry so when you look at the recap of the book we saw that Vashti was queen and she was banished and then the king put out a search party to find a queen rather and found Esther and in the course of that happening Mordecai heard about the plot to kill the king and he let the king know the king had those two units executed and uh, the king elevated Haman and Mordecai didn't bow down to Haman and so Haman came up with a plot to have all the Jews annihilated and the edict went throughout the land as we see at the end of chapter 3 as we looked at last week that on the 13th day of the 12th month that all Jews in every province will be killed and so now we see the response to it from the Jewish people remember it took this edict about three to four months to spread throughout all 120 or so provinces it took a long time by courier to spread out so as the news spread there was great grief among the Jews so Mordecai is terribly grieved at the news of the edict and he does three things he tears his clothes he puts on sackcloth and he cries out with a loud bitter cry and the thing is is that there was great mourning among the Jews throughout the Persian Empire it says every province verse 3 where the king's command and decree arrived there was great mourning among the Jews and what did they do they fasted they weeped and they wailed and some of them donned sackcloth and ashes now sackcloth uh, we would look at like potato sacks I don't know if y'all know how potato sacks look uh, potato sacks are very coarse uh, they're very itchy if you put them on <laughs> I mean we had potato sack races when we was in school you know for homecoming and stuff potato sacks are very itchy uh, but sackcloth was made of either goat's hair or camel's hair and it was very coarse but it was a way of showing humility and contrition and sorrow so they were grieving because certain death was avoidable unavoidable because they knew that whatever the king said in his edict that it had to be followed no matter what whether he regretted it or not so they mourned now I want to note a couple things here 
number one, the Jews did not mourn like the pagans. When the pagans mourned, they often cut their body and shaved their heads. You know, they often cut themselves and shaved their heads. And this was a violation of God's law for God told uh, Israel in Deuteronomy 19 and 28 that they should not make any cuttings in their flesh for the dead or tattoo any marks on them for he is the Lord. And no, that wasn't a prohibition against tattoos for 21st century Christian. That was in that context to distinguish them from what the pagans were doing because the pagans marked their skin as a sign of, of grief. They cut themselves. Paul even reminded us as believers that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. He said that in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. Christians do not grieve like pagans do. It reminded me of, uh, I, I helped officiate the funeral of a former student of mine back in uh, 2017 who had uh, committed suicide. And one of his friends was at the funeral and he had fresh cut marks on his arm. And uh, you know, I knew him because he was one of my, my, my former students and I, you know, asked him, you know, what was going on and you know, he, he cut himself as a way of grieving his friend's death. You know, he, he you know, back in that time in the 2015, 16, 17s, around the middle part of that decade, uh, self-harm was a big thing. You know, uh, high school kids, teenagers, young adults, you know, cutting their skin, you know, to, to deal with grief or deal with the depression that they were uh, feeling they would they would um, commit to self-harm uh, basically but that is how pagans grieve those who don't have hope in God that is what they do but the Jews did not mourn like the pagans they didn't cut their bodies and shave their heads but rather they put on uh, sackcloth and ashes and they fasted and they mourned and they wept and they also tore their clothes just as Mordecai did now. Now, tearing of clothes was especially a sign of intense grief. And we have to understand this about this context, this time period. Most people of this time only owned a few set of clothes. So with Mordecai tearing his clothes, this took on great significance. And this was a uh, sign that was most commonly associated uh, with visible mourning in the Near East. If you look at passages in Genesis 37 and Job and Isaiah 37, you'll see where clothes were torn. That was a, a sign of visible mourning that one would tear their clothes. But back then, they didn't have closets of clothes like we do. They had to have yard sales to sell the clothes that they bought too many of. They only had a few sets of clothes. So for one to tear them clothes meant that there had to be very significant grief that they were feeling in order to tear their clothes. And also noting here that no one 
could go before the king with a sad countenance or while mourning. If you recall back in Nehemiah, the second chapter, uh, when Nehemiah's brother had brought back the, the bad report uh, to him concerning the ruins that the wall was in, the scripture said in Nehemiah 2 that the king asked him, why are you of sad countenance? Because if you're working for the king, if you're in the presence of the king, you cannot appear to be sad because that would mean that, hey, this, this is a terrible king, which he was. But you had to act like everything was happy, that everything was good, that you were glad to be in the presence of this king. So Mordecai didn't want to appear sad in front of the king. And so Esther, she was distressed at Mordecai's mourning. It says Esther's maids and units came and told her and the queen, this is in verse four, was deeply distressed. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. She sent him garments fitting for going before the king, but Mordecai would not wear them. And she didn't know at this point why he did it. And we don't know how long it took the garments to get to him and for them to, they were all in the courts of the king, but we don't know how long it all took. Now, when it said that she was distressed, uh, distressed indicates that she was in writhing pain. She was in writhing pain and she was in anguish. So it was very intense distress that she felt. Now, sometimes you can be just so sick and so much pain that you're just writhing. Just you just can't get settled in your, in, in your soul. That's that, that's how she was. She was greatly distressed. So that was that cry because of what had went out, the edict. So this is a very serious situation that they knew that they were facing. And so after the cry, we have the call beginning at verse five. So we have this playful I won't say playful, but you had this back and forth between <laughs> Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai planned to save the Jews. They had to come to an agreement that Esther should go before the king. So what Esther does, she uses her servant Hatak as a uh, intermediary, a in-between, to go between the two. So basically he was the courier. He was running errands. And instead of Esther and Mordecai you know, meeting face to face and talking. You know, Esther was in her place wherever the queen is, and she was sending Haytag to Mordecai and then give Mordecai a message. And we don't know how long it took Mordecai to craft his response. And, you know, he gave the response back to Haytag, and Haytag brought it back to Esther. And Esther read the response, and it's like a little, little back and forth here. But this underscores the isolation that Esther as queen had. And that her and Mordecai never speak face to face. So this shows that as a queen, she was isolated. She was isolated and she was insulated. There was a certain quarters that the queens had in the king's palace that they had to stay in. And those eunuchs that attended uh, to her, they also kept guard so that she would not leave. And if you think about it, what happened with Vashti, I'm sure that uh, Ahasuerus was, was probably definitely vigilant in making sure that Esther doesn't go anywhere. 
So she was isolated. She was a queen. But she was so lonely. She was so isolated that she had to communicate with Mordecai with an intermediary. So Esther inquires about why Mordecai didn't take the clothes. Why didn't he take them? So it says, Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square, verse 6, that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. And he gave him a, a copy of uh, the edict of the decree for that destruction, which was given at Susa, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go to the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hatak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And then Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law. Put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out his golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go to the king these 30 days. So this shows how long it has uh, transpired since she was called to be queen. So we see in this passage that there's nothing heroic that was said uh, by Esther. As I said last week, Esther is not the hero of this story. She expresses rational and logical fears. You know, that <laughs> whoever goes before the king, guess what? They'll die. That's a very real and rational fear. But she overcomes these fears when she realizes that she has no real alternative but to do so. And we see that in verses 15 and 16. She has no other choice but to go before the king. So the call went out to Esther. And so now we see the choice in verses 12 through 15. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What? prophetic words those are Matthew Henry says this about verse 14 about from another place he says from another place means from another hand and by another means not from God himself for it is not a choice between Esther and God but rather another human agent will be used besides Esther And when it says you and your father's house shall be destroyed by the righteous and dreadful judgment of God, her cowardice and self-seeking will be punished. And that is um, what Esther is facing. 
that if she doesn't do it, she doesn't escape punishment. That if she doesn't do it and someone else does it, guess what? Her family and herself will still be punished. You know the saying, being stuck between the rock and the hard place? <laughs> She's stuck between the rock and the hard place. She either risks going to the king, or so I go to the king and risk being killed, or not doing anything at all and still risk her family being killed. That is a crucible of choice. But as Mordecai reminded her, she can't take a neutral position. Who knows whether you've been called for such a time as this. So on the heels of Esther's excuse, Mordecai essentially tells her that she needs to muster up the courage to go before the king for her sake, for her family, and also for the Jewish people. He tells her in three ways that underscore the confidence in the providence of God. Number one, fear. He tells her, do not think you will escape any more than all the Jews. Says that in verse 13. So that's the first approach that he uses. And then he uses faith. If you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from elsewhere. But she and her family will still perish. Because this is the thing. God will use whomever he wills. We are not indispensable. God's election of his people is for service. It is not just for our benefit. God calling Esther to be queen was not just for her benefit, but it was for the benefit of another. And if Esther didn't want to be used of God, then God would call someone else. And then we have providence. Mordecai basically told her, you are queen for such a time as this. For such a time as this. And I want to underscore this for all of us. As I was studying for this, I, I wrote some of these additional notes down. Perhaps this would be a source of encouragement to you. That God has everyone where he wants them right now no matter the season the season not meaning fall spring winter and summer <laughs> but this time in your life God is everyone where he wants them right now no matter the season everything you know how people say everything happens for a reason people say that right some perhaps some of us say that well you know Everything happens for a reason. I mean, it does. But what's the reason for the reason? You know, people say that, and you don't understand what the, the, the sentiment of it. But the problem is, you have to define terms. What do you mean by reason? What is the reason? The reason has a reason. Because when people say it, it's like, you know, you're just wishing that everything just happens and just falls into place. But everything does happen for a reason. But what is the reason for the reason? The reason that this was the time for Ezra was because Vashti's banishment was for a reason. To make Esther queen. 
for a reason. And what was that reason? To save the Jewish people for a reason. And what was that reason? To fulfill God's covenant promise that he made to Abraham and to David. There's nothing that happens at random. There are no random moments or random events in our life. Every reason behind everything that happens has a reason. There's a purpose to why it happens. There's a purpose to why God has you where he has you right now in your life, in this stage of your life, in this age of your life, in this season. If you're in a season of suffering right now in your life, guess what? God has you there for a specific purpose. If you're in a season of plenty right now, you're, <laughs> you're flourishing. God has you in this season for a purpose. Every reason has a reason. Esther was queen for a reason for such a time as this. Now, Esther's reply suggests an answer of courage because of seeking God through fasting for three days. Because what do we see here? Verse 16, Esther said, go gather all the Jews who are present in Susa and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, let's look at that. This is the answer of courage because she sought God through fasting for three days. God gave her faith, although God's name is not mentioned in this passage in this book. God gave her the faith to go before the king despite the danger. Three things to note here. Esther goes because she believes in what God is doing. Although she she does not know what he is doing. She believes in what God is doing, although she doesn't know what he's doing. And again, number two, this is not about Esther's courage. She is not the hero. God is the hero. God is the one who gives her the courage to go before the king. God is the one who gives us as believers courage to face down our spiritual and mortal enemies. God gives us the courage to face down the enemies of God and enemies of his church. It's never about us. We can't muster up enough courage to stand up against anyone. It is God who does that in us and for us to his glory. And number three, many Christians are more concerned about their own security than about the desperate spiritual needs of the world at one point Esther was concerned about her security and not about the needs of her own people 
But guess what? God gave her the courage. As Christians, we have to be concerned about the deep spiritual needs of the world. People are perishing. People need Jesus. And I don't mean in the southern Christian uh, way. They need salvation through Jesus. They need to be saved. Their souls need to be saved. That should be our concern, not our own security. And that's what Esther had to learn as she, as God gave her the courage to do that. So two things additional we see in here. We see a focus. The focus was to gather the Jews for a fast for three days. And that her maids would fast too. So, so she was focused on what she had to do in going to the king. She was focused on what she had to do to prepare to go before the king. She called a fast for all the Jews as the queen. And she said her maids, and we don't know how many they were, but I'm sure she had plenty of all those people that had to put makeup on her and perfume and get her dressed and all those things. You know, those queens, they had uh, someone at their behest all the time. But she even had her maids. And perhaps those maids were pagans. They were Persians. And she had them fasting also. And number two, we see faith. She would go before the king, though it is against the law to do so. That's what she said here. I will go to the king, which is against the law. If she perishes, she perishes. She will do so trying to save her people. And I will say this about that uh, phrase, if I perish, I perish. That is not a fatalistic um, statement. It is not a resignation. It is a statement of resolve. <laughs> it is not, this is, this is one, you know, I have a list of over a thousand pet peeves. I'm sure you all do too. One big pet peeve of mine, something that gets my blood boiling is when, uh, hopefully no one in here is guilty of that. If so, forgive me. When people say hope for the best and expect the worst, that's not biblical. That's foolish. It is. Not being uncharitable. That's foolish to say. How can you hope for the best and then expect the worst? That's an oxymoron. That, 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 that doesn't make sense. It's self-contradictory. Hope is patient expectation that God will do what he says. That God will fulfill his promise. That God is a faithful God and he will do it. That's hope. How can you expect the worst and have that kind of hope? <laughs> That's not hope, friends. I'm sorry. So if you're guilty of saying that, I'm sorry for stepping on your toes. But I love you. If you hear someone else say that, stop them and say, explain what you mean by that. Hope for the best. This is not what Esther meant when she said, if I perish, I perish. As is to say, oh, well, whatever happens, happens. No, that's not what that means. No, this is a resolve. 
that I'm going to the king no matter what. God has given me the courage and I'm going. That is a resolve. It's taking it, standing up, not sitting down. And that is what she meant. It wasn't fatalism. Like she just giving in and giving up. She had faith because God had given her the faith. And, and, and just think about this. This is her husband. And she's the queen. He is so evil that she's afraid to go before her own husband. He treats her just as all the other citizens of the kingdom. And we're going to get to that later on in our uh, applications. But he treats her just like everybody else. No special favors. And that's sad. So let's look at some principles, implications, and applications. Number one, principles. The first principle is God is working his purpose out. Again, from Vashti to Esther, reading the first three chapters, we see God's purpose is working itself out. Vashti was not banished for no reason. I said that earlier. Ahasuerus was not king for no reason. He didn't get drunk for no reason. All of that from Vashti to Esther being chosen to Mordecai hearing the plot by the two eunuchs to Haman being elevated and to Mordecai not bowing down to Haman and to Haman uh, vowing to annihilate all the Jews to the king's edict being published. All of this was God's purpose still working out. Still working out. God works with human behavior and responses to him. Through the choice of Esther and Mordecai, who was at the king's gate, we see God working with human behavior. We see him doing that. Also, we see that God is protecting and saving his people because ultimately God will use human agents to protect the Jews from being annihilated. And it begins to go into motion in this chapter. We, we see that because the next chapter we're going to see where Esther goes and has her banquet. Spoiler alert. You can read ahead to find out. <laughs> but we're going to see that take place. Another principle is that God calls his people to faith in him. Esther and Mordecai demonstrate faith in the providence of God. And this faith brings glory to God. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, the more difficult the position of the church has in contrast with the world, the more favorable is her position in bringing to view her glory. And her glory is that of her head. He was saying that Spurgeon because the church is trying to be like the world. And because the church is trying to be like the world, the church is losing her influence. 
refer to the church as her because the church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And the church is losing her influence, particularly in this nation and in other Western nations, because the church is trying to be like the world. But God calls his people to faith in him to not be like the world because the glory ultimately belongs to God. It ultimately belongs to God. And the, pos the position of the church must be in contrast with the world. Because as 1 John 5 says, the world is under the sway of the evil one. John says, you are of God, Christian, and the world is under the sway of the evil one. So why would the church try to be like the world that is under the sway of Satan? Why does the church try to make the gospel, to take the hard edges off the gospel? For the world to do nothing more than to trample on it. Because that's all the world is going to do. They're going to trample the gospel underfoot. That's what they're going to do. They're going to tell you that your gospel is unloving. That it is outdated. That it is outmoded. Because the church is trying to be like the world. And that is not the witness that we ought to have. Esther and Mordecai could not be like the pagans. They couldn't mourn like the pagans. With the life of her native people on the line, she had to violate pagan law and go where? Before the king and face him. She couldn't cower down to the law of not going before the king and allow her people to do what? To perish, to be annihilated. No, she could not do that. God calls his people to faith in him. God called Esther and Mordecai to faith in him. And if I perish, I perish. And that is the position of the church. We hold forth to God's truth. We hold forth to faith in God. And if we perish, we perish. If the world comes after us, guess what? Let them come. Because Christ has promised us that the gates of hell will not prevail. They will come up against the church, which they are. But they will not prevail. Because God has called his church to faith in him. And if we perish, we perish. We can't capitulate to the pagan culture. And that's the choice that Esther and Mordecai made in being called to faith in him. Implications. Number one, I, I, I love these. We have a better mediator. Uh, Esther is not a perfect mediator. But we have a better mediator than Esther. Esther was the mediator for the Jewish people. She was going before the king on behalf of the Jews. But we have a better mediator and his name is Christ. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 and 5 that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, the God man. He is our mediator. He is our attorney. 
A mediator is basically a go-between. 1 John 2 and 1 says, uh, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. That's 1 John 2 and 1. Because we are going to sin. But what does Christ do? He serves as our mediator. He serves as our advocate. In other words, he pleads on our behalf. That's what an advocate does. An advocate pleads on the behalf of someone who can't speak for themselves, someone who needs defending. And that's what Christ does for us. He is the better mediator. He has never lost a case. He's never lost a case. He has never lost a soul to Satan. Number two, we have a better king, unlike Xerxes, who would chop your head off. That's how they killed people back then, the kings. They beheaded them. If anyone dared come before the king's presence, if anyone dared had a sad countenance, off went their head. That's what they did. But we have a better king. And with this king, we have no fear of death in going before him. The cross is the golden scepter. And we can come boldly before Christ. As the writer in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says that we do not have a high priest who was not sympathetic to our needs. But he was in every way tempted yet without sin. Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy in time of need. That's Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We have a better king. Christ is a great king. He's not a tyrant. He's not a dictator. Excuse me. He doesn't have fits of anger like a little kid. He doesn't have temper tantrums like Xerxes did and, and kicked his wife out the kingdom. We have a better king. And three, we have a better savior. Esther is selfless like Jesus. She said, if I perish, I perish. In that sense, she was selfless like Jesus. Christ was the ultimate sign of selflessness. After all, he gave his life. You look at John 10 and 18, Jesus said that he gives his life for the sheep, that no one takes his life. Christ gave his life. No one took his life. He wasn't, oh, you poor little thing. Look what they did to you. No, Jesus went to the cross willingly. He gave his life. That is the ultimate act of selflessness. Jesus said here in John 10 and 18, no one takes it from me. He's talking about his life. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. That's a better savior who willingly gives his life. And Esther is just a picture of that, a shadow of this selfless Christ. So as far as applications, Jesus is the better mediator. We go to him in times of prayer, in times of distress. What did Esther call on? She called on 
fasting and prayer and mourning. It's called on the three-day fast. Fasting to their God. We go to Christ. He is our mediator. He pleads our righteousness before God. He gives us access to God the Father. We go to the Father in the name of Jesus. And since he is a better king, we fear and worship him and him alone. He alone is worthy to be feared and worshiped. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 95. And that is a call to worship and obedience of God. The psalmist says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. He is the better king above all the small G gods. He is the great king above Joseph Biden or Donald Trump or any other type of God that people worship. He is the greater king. He is the better God. The psalmist goes on, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. From the deepest part of the ocean, the Mariana Trench, which is over 36,000 feet deep, all the way to Mount Everest, which is over 29,000 feet, all of that God made, all of that belongs to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. They say the earth is 70% water and 30% land. Guess who formed all of that? God did. And because of that, he is to be worshipped. He is to be feared. Not fearing man. We're not to fear man like everyone in this kingdom feared Xerxes and afraid to go before him unless he extended the golden scepter to them. No. We're only, only to fear God. And Jesus is a better Savior. Look to him for salvation. We are to point people to Christ. He is the better Savior. He is the only one who can save. We can't save ourselves. We can't be a better person and save ourselves. We can't start doing the right thing and save ourselves. We cannot get ourselves right with God. Only Jesus as the better Savior can save us. That is what we have to affirm as believers. That Christ is a better mediator. He is a better king. And he is a better savior. And at last one day we will share in his glory. When we see him. We will partake in his glory. And we will experience the fullness of his goodness. A day is coming friends where we would no longer have to fast when Jesus comes back there will be no more fasting there will be no more tears there will be no more grieving and weeping there will be no more pain there will be no more putting on sackcloth and ashes but those who are not saved they think they have sorrow now their sorrows will be increased when Christ comes back. 
Let us pray. Father, we thank you today that you are the better mediator, that you are the better king, that you are the better savior. We thank you, Lord, for showing us through your word the crucible of choice. That all of us as believers will have to face that choice one day. And Lord, in that moment of decision, give us faith to stand. Give us faith in you. Give us the courage to stand against the schemes of our enemy. Knowing, Lord, that he is already defeated. Knowing that we don't have to fear him who can destroy the body but not the soul. But to fear him who destroys both the soul and body in hell. Lord, help us to fear you and not man. Help us to worship you and not worship man. Not worship created things. Father, may you use this word to encourage the faithful. Encourage us, Lord, by the preached word. And Lord, may you also use this message to bring sinners to repentance and faith in you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.